if you've got your Bibles, we're continuing in the book of Daniel. Surprise. We're going to be in chapter 3. But to get you caught up with where we are, to kind of lay the foundation and give a little bit of context, we're going to start, I'm going to give you kind of the flyby, the spark notes on chapter 2. But I want to begin with this. Because all the messages, everything that we're going through this week, it's all tied to the same question coming back to what does it mean to live with resilience as a follower of Jesus in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity? Most people are not forced to evaluate the accuracy of their picture of God until times of crisis And crises have a clarifying effect on it. They cause us to reevaluate. Perhaps we have believed a lie and we need to find an answer that satisfies. Perhaps we encounter a situation we did not expect or we were not prepared for. So we search for answers, solutions, and guides that we did not know we needed. Trials and tribulations are how God gets our attention. In James chapter 1, 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 9, it says it this way. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And maybe this doesn't offer us much consolation, because again, this is just coming back to the theme of trials and tribulations, time and time and time again throughout the Bible, are practically guaranteed to us. Where God is reminding us, if you are choosing to live according to my will. Don't be surprised when you come up against opposition. In fact, I can guarantee that culture will be directly opposed to you. It doesn't offer much in terms of consolation, but maybe it can offer us a different perspective on trials. Maybe it can offer us a different way of looking at the trials and tribulations that we go through in life. Maybe it can give us some insight, a different way of looking at heartbreak, a different way of looking at grief, a different way of processing loss. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote this. He said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses all circumstances to get our attention and to shape us into who he wants us to be. And that sounds all well and good when times are good. However, when we're in the midst of a trial, it can be a little gut-wrenching for us. 
it can be deeply troubling for us. And this is where we find Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. The king is troubled. The king is anxious. The king has not been able to sleep for one night going on two nights, going on multiple nights, now going on weeks. He's restless because he can't find rest. He can't find sleep because there's a dream that he has. And he can't make head or tails of it. He doesn't understand what this means. And this is where we find him in chapter 2. And so what he does, he, he has this series of dreams. And he calls to get together the enchanters, the wise men, the Chaldeans, they're called, that are, with it, that are under his reign. He calls them all together and he brings them into a space. And essentially he tests them. He doesn't even tell them what the dreams are. Now you would expect him to say, here's the dream that I had. Can you interpret this for me? Instead, he tests them. And I don't know if it was the sleep deprivation or what, but it's kind of a twisted way of doing this, where he says, he brings them all in, and he says, tell me what my dream was. And then, after you've told me what my, if you can tell me what my dream was, tell me what it means. And this is an impossible task. Can you imagine, like, someone calling you, one of your teachers calling you into the class, and it's like, I had this crazy dream last night. Tell me what the dream was. And then interpret it. Tell me what that dream means. And you get an A for this semester. That'd be pretty nice. Except for the, the, uh, the stakes are a little higher in this case. Essentially, he's saying, tell me what my dream was. Interpret it for me. If you can't do either of those things, you're going to die. I'll put you to death. And so, of course, the wise men are, are coming together, and this is an impossible task that they've been given. They don't even know where to start here. And soon enough, the truth comes out, they, they've got nothing. They've got nothing. Even in their, in, in their combined efforts, they have no idea what to tell the king. And the king goes into a fit of rage. And he has them all put to death. All the Chaldeans, all the enchanters, all the wise men of his court across the entire nation are put to death. Daniel happens to fall in that category. Because during his time in Babylon, Daniel, unfortunately for him, has found favor with King Nebuchadnezzar and has kind of climbed the social, the, the social ladder into this inner circle of wise men, of counselors that the king relies on. And so soldiers approach Daniel because he is to be put to death as well. And Daniel instead, what he, what, he does here, what he does is he inquires about the source of the king's decree because the king had issued this decree of all wise men are to be put to death because he's in a fit of rage. He's seeing red. He hasn't slept in weeks. He's cranky, okay? I've seen some of you guys after like a half-decent night of sleep. He's cranky, all right? He's not thinking straight in this space. And so Daniel says, whoa, 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 hold on. Tell me what it is that's going on here. Give me a little bit of the story. And then he asked the king to give him time to seek the answers to his problem. And then here's what Daniel does. He goes back to his friends and he asks them to join in praying for God to be merciful and give them answers that will satisfy the king's impossible, unreasonable request. 
And in verse 19 of chapter 2, very succinctly, God reveals to him the mystery of the dream in a vision, but he doesn't yet reveal what the dream means. And so he goes back before the king, before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he reveals to him both in that moment, both what the dream was and what the dream means. He interprets it. He talks about this massive idol that's been built. He talks about, these are, these are my notes uh, that I have here, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I got most of these right. It's a giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw whose head was gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and hips were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were clay. He then saw a stone come out and crush the entire statue, and it turned into dust. And then the stone turned into a giant mountain that filled the whole earth. And Daniel explains it to him. He says, you, king, are the head of gold, but Babylon will be followed by other kingdoms. Those other types of metal that the statue is built out of will be followed by other kingdoms, which are represented in those, the different body parts of the, of the statue. All of these will one day come to an end. Just like in the video, he's saying, one day your reign will come to an end. And there are other kingdoms that will rise. And those kingdoms will fall away. But there is a greater kingdom. There is an ultimate kingdom that will one day be ushered in. And that's the sovereign kingdom of my God. This is what he reveals to him. And this may not have been the answer that Nebuchadnezzar wanted. But he rejoiced in this moment, and he had an interesting response where he actually acknowledges God in that moment. He says, surely the God of Daniel is the one true God. Surely this is it. And he acknowledges that with his words. But it's important to note, at no point does he repent. We never see a posture of repentance in Nebuchadnezzar. We simply see him acknowledge a truth that's been revealed to him, a truth that the God of Daniel is the one true living God. In that moment, he's a cultural Christian. In that mo moment, he's merely acknowledging what is already true. But then as we, as we go on in chapter two, immediately after that, he actually goes out and begins to construct a statue, much like the statue that he saw in his vision, much like the statue that he's been dreaming about. In this conversation with Daniel, he says, surely the God of Daniel is the one true God. Wow. Anyways, here's a nice idol that I'm going to build. He acknowledges God with his lips and then turns and continues to live in a life of sin to the point where he constructs an idol that is to be worshipped. We have been constructing idols from the beginning of time. All throughout human history, we see examples of idols that have been built. Sometimes they are physical idols. Sometimes they are, they are an idea or an ideology. We struggle with the idea of idols. Why? Because we are worshippers. Our natural inclination is in life. You have been designed, you have been uniquely constructed to worship something. And so we begin to find things that we deem to be worthy of our worship, that we deem to be worthy to be glorified. 
And there are idols that we have in life. And if you want to find where the idols are in your life, consider what your prayer life looks like. When's the last time that your prayer went something like, God, if you just give me this one thing, I promise I'll never skip another Sunday morning again. God, if you can just do this one thing, I know I don't pray a whole lot, but I'm really in a, in a lot of need right now. You don't understand what's going on. This is what's going on. I, I need help with this. If you can just give me this, if you can just deliver me through this season, I promise I'll give you anything you want. I'll do anything that you want. Consider your prayer life. The things that you use to leverage God's blessing those are your idols. That's your God. Consider the things that take up the most amount of your thought life. Consider the things that take up the most amount of your attention. Consider the things in life that take up the most amount of your affection. The single most valuable commodity that you have to spend in this life isn't money. It's your time. Because you have a limited amount of time and you can't make any more. What are you spending that time on? If I were to challenge you to list out the top 10 most important things in your life, or if I were to ask people who are close to you, your best friends, list out the top 10 most important things in their life, would God even make the list? If I were to ask you, list out the top 10 things that you spend the most amount of time focusing on, the most amount of your, your focus and affection, how long would it be before we got to God? Because all throughout Scripture, the question that's being asked is not a question of, do you want hell or do you want heaven? A lot of times we oversimplify what Christianity is. When we look at the Bible and we extrapolate the, the, the teachings of Jesus in particular, when we're seeing the warnings that are laid out, and we water Christianity down, we water our faith walk down to the simple question of, do you want heaven ah, or hell? And that's a pretty easy answer. But it's not at all merely a question of, do you want heaven or do you want hell? The question you need to be asking yourself is, do you want God? And that's a daily choice that you have to make. Do you want God or are you going to worship the idols in your lives? Are you going to walk with him at the center of his will? Or are you going to compromise and live according to your will? Because there's a will that you have, and there's a will that God has for your life. And they are oftentimes at odds with each other. In the beginning, in the garden, we see Adam and Eve are given a choice to live according to his will. And they choose to live according to theirs. And it ushered in the result of sin, a brokenness, a separation from him that we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Death always involves separation. Sin brings about a spiritual death that separates us from him. And sin is any time that we choose our will and to live according to our will over living according to his will. 
And so here's where we find ourselves and we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3. If you're not already there, Daniel chapter 3 in verse 4. Or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 4. Nailed it. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is once the idol has been constructed by Nebuchadnezzar. He said, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Ooh. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, we get it, you have a lot of instruments, uh, fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. There is a devotion that is being demanded in this moment. Compromise. I doubt any of us will ever be faced with a statue that we are forced to grovel in front of under the threat of being thrown into a blazing furnace. But believers are frequently in situations that test your allegiance. You will daily find yourself in situations where you have a decision to make, where your allegiance will be tested. Where does your allegiance lie? lost my, my spot. 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Mwahaha. They're in a bit of a pickle here. They're given a choice to pick between God and man. To pick between a fear of God and a fear of man. For a moment, put yourself in their shoes. For a moment, consider that you're being forced to choose under threat of death. This seems like a pretty simple solution. He's saying, um, excuse me, do you see this glorious statue that I've constructed? I'm the king, and I issued a decree to all nations to come and bow down when you hear the music. That's all you have to do. You're not hurting, you're not hurting anybody. Just bow down to the idol or get thrown in a blazing furnace. Those are your options. 
But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood those weren't the options. They were being asked to compromise. They were being asked to choose anything else other than their God, the God of Israel. And so this is what they reply in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. It's kind of sassy. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Underline these next words. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. There is a defiant defense that they have here. Why? Because they have a confidence in God's authority, because they have a confidence in God's power. They have a confidence in God's wisdom. They know that his ways are so far beyond above our ways. His knowledge is beyond our, our knowledge. His wisdom is, a, is far beyond our wisdom. He is able. He is able to deliver us from your hands, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, it does not change who he is. Even if he doesn't deliver us from your hands, O king, he is still good. He is still sovereign. He is still Lord over all. I have a friend named Tanner. He's a brilliant musician. He's a rapper. If you want to check out his music, it's T-Ross the Giant or T-Ferrari. He's on Spotify, on all platforms. Shameless plug. Check him out. Incredibly gifted. He's been recording music for, for years. And he's just such a, he's such a light. In just about like any room that he comes in, he's just got this charisma about him. And he's so much fun to be around. And a few years ago, he was having some pain in, in, in his body. And he wasn't able to sleep very well. And so um, ended up going into the doctors to get some tests done and come to find out that he has leukemia. And leukemia is aggressive enough as is, but this was particularly aggressive. And for the next 18 months, we watched Tanner battle leukemia, and they went through all these different trials, all these different tests, and tried these different drugs and these different things. And it was, a, it was a beautiful season of seeing friends and families gather around him and just encourage him. And even in the midst of that, he actually has music videos that he filmed as he was receiving chemo in the hospital. And all throughout that, he was just covered in prayer from friends and from family within the church. He volunteered within our church, and so we had so many people that were coming and, and just being an encouragement to him and his family. And for 18 months, he battled leukemia and there were good times, and there were really bad times, and then there were good times again. And after his last set of chemotherapy, about a couple weeks after that, he went in for some more blood tests, and they found he was in remission. And a few weeks after that, they go back in, and they find there's actually no, there's no, there's no trace of, of leukemia. There's no signs of leukemia. There's no cancerous cells in his, in his body anymore. It's, it's, it was miraculous healing particularly for somebody that young. Someone that young doesn't get, I mean, he was, he was 19. 
when he got leukemia. And so he got to come home from the hospital, and we celebrated with him. And it was this season of celebration, and we were just so happy for him. And he got back into the studio, and we, he was recording more music and, and making plans to, to, to go on tour. And he ended up marrying his, his high school sweetheart. Her name's Sarah. And they started this beautiful life together. And towards the year mark, their first year of marriage, he went back into the hospital just for another round of, of tests just to make sure that there were still no signs of it. And he gets a call from his doctor the next day. He says, hey, I, I need you to sit down. The cancer's back. We found tumors in your pancreas. We found tumors in your kidneys. And we found seven tumors in your brain. And Tanner asked, what does that mean? And his doctor said, I'm not sure. And so we started going through trials again. We started testing these different drugs. We flew him out to a few different states so that he could spend time with specialists this young man who doctors and specialists just wanted, wanted so much for. They wanted to be able to help. Well, what if we try this? What if we try this? What if we try this? And every night that he was in the hospital, his friends would come and visit him there. And every night he would just say, God is so good. God's the only one who can heal me. And they would lay hands on him and they would pray for miraculous healing. They would say, God, you healed him once. We know that you can do it again. God, you brought about miraculous healing in his life. We know that you can do it again. May all, all glory and all honor and all praise be to you because you are all powerful, because you are sovereign, because you are Lord over all. You are Lord over his body. You can heal him. And every night Tanner would say, I believe that, I believe that he can heal me. But even if he doesn't, he is still good. Every night he would say, I believe God can heal me. But even if he doesn't, he is still good. Because my circumstances have no impact on my knowledge and understanding and trust in the Almighty. He knew that his circumstances were changing. God's nature does not. His health was deteriorating. God's goodness remains the same. Night after night after night, T. Ross the giant would say, I know and I trust that God can heal me. Even if he doesn't, he is still good. And I will praise him and glorify him with every day that I have. And earlier this year, Tanner got to go home. He got to leave the hospital for end-of-life care with his family. Earlier this year, he got to leave and come back to his home but a home that he understood wasn't his final destination. And surrounded by friends 
surrounded by family, surrounded by people in this world who love him most, he took his last breaths. All the while, never losing sight, never losing hope, never losing trust that God was always, is always, and always will be able But even if he didn't, it wouldn't change who God was. And that left a lasting impact, not just on me, but on our, on our church community. And so far beyond that, he had a reach through his music where people were finally understanding what these words that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were saying. Standing in front of a furnace that they're about to be pushed in front of. They're defiant. They stand their ground. They remain firmly planted in a God who remains constant through all things. And they say, we know and we trust. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But... Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he doesn't, we will not compromise. That's what faith looks like. If you want to plant your faith in meaningful words, May your faith simply describe by, be described by the words, but even if I will live my life with the hope and the knowledge and the understanding and the confidence and the trust that God is precisely who he says he is. He is all-knowing. His ways are above my ways. He can deliver me out of this season. He can deliver me from this heartbreak. He can deliver me from this brokenness. He can deliver me from tragedy. But even if he doesn't, I will not compromise. I will not worship any other false god or idol. And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the, in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
And so Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Such an event as this demonstrates a few things to us. Such an incredible story such as this reveals some things that are important for us to understand. The first one is this, obedience to godless commands always produces death. If we are obedient to godless commands, it will always result in death. And death will always involve separation. When we sin, there is an instant spiritual death where we become separated from his, from his presence. Matthew 16, 25 says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The second thing is this. God does not save them from the furnace. Notice this. God doesn't pluck them out of the furnace. God doesn't even put out the fire. God doesn't destroy the temple in, in, in that moment. God doesn't strike King Nebuchadnezzar dead. He does not save them from the flames. He's simply present with them in it. It's interesting that he doesn't deliver them from the furnace He's simply present with them in the furnace. James 1, 1 through, 2, 1 through 2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In Psalm 23, uh, verse 4, King David says this, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I fear no evil. I fear no man. I fear no compromise. I fear no death. Why? Because you are present. Because you are with me. The same way he was with them in the fiery furnace. We talked about this this morning. Living at the center of God's will will seldom be the safest place for you to be, but it will always be the most significant place for you to be. An example of this is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Living at the center of God's will, walking, aligning their will with God's will throughout their lives, where did it lead them? To a fiery furnace. That, by no stretch of the imagination, was the safest place for them to be but it was the most significant place for them to be. 
present with God. Do you want an easy life without calamity and heartbreak and without him? Or do you want a life that's going to be filled with trials and heartbreak and tragedy and brokenness, but with the promise that there is an ultimate kingdom that will be coming? with the promise that he is always good in the midst of your trials and in the midst of your tribulation, in the midst of your circumstances, because no matter how much your life changes, he never does. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, and we'll end with this. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. God, thank you for the reminder of that tonight, for the story that we have of Daniel, of his faithfulness, and the way that you used him, and the three friends that we see that are cast into the fiery furnace. When they are faced with certain death, they refuse to compromise. They refuse to worship anything other than the one who is worthy of worship. May we be reminded of that when we are faced of the idols of our time, that are demanding our attention, that are demanding our time, that are demanding our affection, we will not compromise because it is better to be with you than to be without you. May that be our reminder and our encouragement tonight and tomorrow throughout the rest of the week as we continue to uplift and encourage one another. It's in your name we pray tonight. Amen.